Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. A one-day, essentially a one-day hearing um, should give the plaintiffs the opportunity to make whatever case they believe they have, a case we believe is non-existent. We don't intend to ask for, of course, all the ballots to inspect. It's going to be a limited inspection. I don't know how that link was so widely distributed, and I'm not going to go into it at this time with anybody speculating how that happened. I'm not running for the United States Senate. Now, would you do it in the future? I'm, I'm, not, running for the, I'm not running for the United States Senate, and it's not something I'm considering. And it's the same answers I was giving in, in uh, 2021. She claims to be independent. That's not the case. The case is that she can't win a primary against me, uh, and this is her only option. It's a political stunt. It's a visual barrier that is not actually providing effective barrier to entry. Um, and I think a waste of taxpayer dollars. And with me to talk about some GOP candidates having their first day in court, the continued fallout from Senator Kirsten Sinema's party switch and more are Paul Bentz of High Ground. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. And Julie Earthley of Earthley Uncuffed. Hi, Julie. Hello. So let's start with uh, a trio of GOP statewide candidates, Carrie Lake, Mark Fincham, and Abe Hamaday, uh, taking their lawsuits to court. Uh, Paul, is it any surprise of what they were trying to argue and what uh, what the opponents were, were arguing against? No, I, I think this is what we expected all along. Uh, you know, had they won, I don't think we would hear all of this complaining, but suddenly they lost. And uh, what do you know? There's fraud in the election. And this is just a continuation of what they talked about in 2020. And what we've seen now is Republicans who continue to look backwards seem to lose. Uh, there's a lot of folks encouraging them to look forward, but they, they don't seem to be willing to do that. But I, I think the biggest thing that we saw is in the uh, response to Fincham's lawsuit, uh, Fontes's lawyer uh, said, this is a flimsy tantrum of conspiracy theories and outright falsities. And I think that's a pretty accurate description of what we're talking about here. Julie, you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I won't. I won't. I won't try to uh, exactly re replicate the, the phrase, but you think so? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what Paul is alluding to as well, and I would agree with, is that the continuation of Republicans who lose elections to continue to challenge it, to continue to say that there was fraud involved, just paints the entire party in a negative light. I mean, it makes them look like a bunch of sore losers, frankly. And I don't think that that's positive for Republicans moving forward. Polling prior to this election and certainly what we saw in the election with voters choosing, you know, more centrist Democrats is that they're just tired of litigating elections. They really want to move forward. They they made their decisions, honor that, move forward. And with Republicans continuing to question it, I think it's just um, I think it's harmful to the entire party, frankly. Do you see any difference, Julie, between the lawsuits filed by Lake and Fincham in one camp and Hamaday in the other? Because it seems like in his lawsuit, he wasn't alleging the same kind of fraud and irregularities that the others were. He was trying to get more, basically get more votes uh, counted because, you know, his race was decided by, what, 511 votes. Right. I, I think, again, there, if we're going to you know talk about the attorneys, I'd go back to what Dan Barr said, where it's really, again, this is a case that's long on speculation, short on specifics. And and I, I don't think that Hamada is going to have 
any more success, frankly, than Carrie Lake or Mark Fincham, to be honest. I mean, yes, there's a closer margin there, but there is a recount going on because of that. And I think that's where, you know, those final numbers will come in. I, I don't anticipate that this case is going to end any differently than the other two. I mean, Paul, that that race is going to a recount, but as a lot of folks have pointed out, you know, a recount will maybe change a handful of votes, and even a race this close, 511 votes, probably unlikely that that big a margin is going to change. Right. It's very unlikely that the margin will change. It, it recounts, maybe you'll see a few votes shift, but overall, it, it's sort of funny. You look at the margins, Hamaday at about 500, Lake at about 17,000, and then Fincham over 100,000. It's, it's sort of commensurate with sort of the level of disbelief that comes with the lawsuit that they're filing. <laughs> um, the, Fincham certainly is the, the most on the extreme spectrum, but also couldn't call Secretary-elect Fontes by the right name, called him Fuentes as yeah. a uh, compared to what you're talking about with Hamaday, which is much more focused, much more centered on trying to get individuals to uh, uh, count more votes. Do you think that, that that approach in terms of the approach Hamaday is taking, not alleging widespread fraud, fraud and irregularities, but really just trying to focus on particular ballots, does that have a, a better chance of success, do you think? Well, uh, if you give the chance of the widespread conspiracy theory a zero chance of likelihood of happening, yeah, I mean, compared to that, yeah. The, but overall, I suspect that these will all – they're more theater and trying to set Republicans up. But the question is what is it setting them up for? They really need to start looking ahead to 2024 if they want to be successful. They've got to learn the lesson. Uh, when they when they use 2020 and spend all their time focusing on that, they lost. If they do that again in 2024, focus on 2022, they'll lose again. So, Julie, looking ahead then to 2024, which I know nobody is quite ready to, to do yet, but, you know, we saw that former President Trump announced that he is running again. There was a story, I think it was in Politico this week, that suggested Kerry Lake is like angling to try to be his running mate if he wins the nomination. I would imagine from a Democratic perspective, there's maybe a part of you that's like, OK, sure, keep doing it. Yeah, honestly, there is. I mean, there there is part of me that says if you want to run, go ahead and run. I think that voters are tired of it. At the same time, though, I don't – you know, you never quite count Trump out. And the reality is, is you could still have a situation where he wins the nomination even if the majority of Republicans don't want him as their nominee. And just him winning the nomination, for instance, if there's a, a whole crowded race and he still has that very committed 30 percent of, of that party – um, he still can cause damage. And every day that Trump is in the news, in my opinion, is a day of lost information. <laughs> we just need to move on from that. Any surprise, Julie, that attorneys for uh, Katie Hobbs for the, the county are asking a judge to throw these out and to basically make the lawyers for the, the GOP candidates pay attorney's fees? We saw it happen once before. No, no surprise whatsoever. I mean, there is no there there in these lawsuits. And I, I do think that there comes a point where you have to punish folks for bringing lawsuits that are completely frivolous, that don't have merit, that are really just about speculate, speculation and conjecture. And if you don't do that, that's going to continue this pattern. So I, I'm not surprised at all that they would make that request. Let's talk for just a moment about the the lawsuit that involved Carrie Lake, where there are some technical issues. We heard the judge at the top talk about he doesn't know how a link. There's a link that was sent out for attorneys and, and parties in the case that was pretty widely distributed by some in the GOP to encourage people to listen in, which caused the hearing to be delayed. 
Is this just kind of a quirky thing, Paul? Is there anything anything more nefarious, anything problematic with this? No, I, I just think it speaks to the passion. There's there's a certain number of these Republicans that showed up at every Cary Lake rally. They have the time to show up at the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. They have the time to tune in to uh, the, a court hearing like this. It's a very narrow portion, but they are incredibly loud and in, have so much time in the world that they can really dominate and dictate. And they're the one, same ones that go to these uh, precinct committee meetings. And that's what's scaring these Republicans who are willing, there are a significant number of Republicans who would like to move on and who would like to try to cast a vision forward and bring the party back to to their victories, which they've had a lot in the state of right. Arizona historically. Uh, but they're afraid because when you go to these, when you go to these small room meetings, you get shouted down. You're, you're going to get harassed. You're going to get threatened. I mean, look at Bill Gates. I mean, he is getting threatened from across the country. And that's what happens in these situations. But it's such a vocal minority that's really driving the narrative right now. Julie, is this kind of a, a very sort of visceral example of what we hear so much about how in politics these days, the loudest voice wins? Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely what's happening. Um, just the fact that we're still giving uh, Donald Trump this much attention, you know, shows that that being loud and being outrageous does win. Uh, the fact that Carrie Lake, I mean, I, I saw a report recently that talked about how much earned media she had. I mean, it was just unbelievable the amount of earned media she had. And it was really because she followed that Trump playbook of just being as outrageous as possible, saying outrageous things. And so she did. She got her message out without having to spend that kind of money. Um, but it's at the end of the day, that's not what's best for democracy. So let's talk about a different type of lawsuit. This week, the federal government said it was going to sue the state over Governor Ducey's shipping containers, uh, border shipping container border wall in, in southern Arizona. We should point out that Governor-elect Katie Hobbs has said that she will not add to it. She's a little questionable if she's going to take down what's already there. The feds want the state to take it down. Julie, the, the feds had kind of signaled that they were going to do this. Doug Ducey is invoking uh, Teddy Roosevelt and saying that uh, he has the right to do it. How, how do you see this playing out? Uh, performative art. It's really just performative art. This is Ducey's sort of last grasp, I think, on pretending like he's this tough guy on the border. I, I don't think that this was anything other than a photo op. Um, the governor certainly has a history in this respect. You know, just today, of course, there was a story that came out that talked about the border strike force and how really it, it did not do what the governor said it was doing. It really was just DPS doing the hard work, the day-to-day -day work of DPS. Um, it, it, it just, it's, again, it's performative art. And I think if the federal government comes in and says, take these down, I don't think that, you know, Governor Hobbs will disobey. I think she'll be like, okay, let's take it down. It doesn't work. Yeah, Paul, what do you think? I mean, in some respect, like the timing on this is interesting, right? Because Governor Ducey is going to be out of office in a couple of weeks. Right. Um, and so the question will be, what do we do with what's already there? Well, it's an early holiday present for Governor-elect Hobbs. Uh, you know, uh, they come in, say, this is against the law. You have to take it down. And then she can say, look, there's nothing I can do. The feds are telling me I have to do this, um, you know, and, and then she but the, the challenge is she needs to then pivot about what her plan is for immigration. Immigration is still the second highest issue facing the state of Arizona, and people want action on immigration. Whether it's performative art or not, Governor Ducey showed action, which built his national credibility. In fact, this 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 fence is a little bit of a win-win because Governor gets to claim credit for it, and then the feds are going to tell everybody to take it down, and then Governor-elect Hobbs can say, well, what can I do? I have to do what the feds say. So actually, at the end of the day, it, it, do I think it really was impacting border security? Probably not, um, but it is 
is people want something done on the border, and this is certainly something the governor was able to do to to show that support. It's it's this fundamental to build the wall mentality. There's just a portion of the electorate that really believes that the wall is the solution. So, Paul, do you think this is more of a challenge or more of an opportunity for Governor-elect Hobbs? You mentioned she'll have to show that she's doing something. So is the fact that the feds may ask her or tell her to take this shipping container wall down more of a, a challenge for her because then she has to do something or more of an opportunity because it gives her an opportunity to do what she wants to do there? Well, I, I think it's an opportunity, but part of that is she should work with newly independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, who has been pushing for this Title 42 reform in exchange for border security. Right. Sinema has expressed a real desire for some immigration reform, something that has really uh, not been pushed very uh, strongly since about the Gang of Eight proposal. Um, she can have a, a victory on immigration, and I think she should. The challenge is, uh, are they willing to bring the folks together to find that compromise to make that happen? Julie, more of a, a challenge or opportunity, you think, for Governor-elect Hobbs? No, I think it can be an opportunity as well. And I agree with Paul in that this is also something where she can pivot to, you know, this is Congress's role. This is what they are supposed to be tackling. This isn't something that is supposed to be left up to border governors or governors in general. Um, I, I'm actually quite glad to see that Senator Sinema is making a pivot to immigration and the border. I, I would like to see more in that respect. We do have a history uh, as a, a border state of having our senators lead on this issue. The reality is they've never quite been able to get it over the finish line, which is um, not a mark on the senators who have tried, like Senator McCain. Um, it's more a mark on the fact that just Congress is so immovable on this issue and both sides have really used it to their advantage. They have created this wedge issue. And so, you know, I, I mean, if there's one hope that I have for Senator Cinema in these next couple of years, it's that she will make a very concerted effort, her and Senator Kelly, to lead some kind of immigration reform package. My guests this week are Julie Erfley of Erfley Uncuffed and Paul Bentz of High Ground. So, Paul, you invoked uh, newly independent Senator Kirsten Sinema's name. So let's talk about uh, the continued ramifications and repercussions of her switch, which uh, she announced right around last week at this time. Uh, we heard at the very beginning uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego uh, basically pretty bluntly say the quiet part out loud, right, that in his opinion, she didn't switch parties because of independence or ideology. She did it because she couldn't win a primary against him. He has been rumored to uh, to be running. Obviously, none of us can get inside her head. We don't want to ascribe motives to somebody that, you know, who's saying otherwise. But it would seem as though the signs point to this being at least somewhat of a political move, right? Well, I, first of all, let's talk about that. That It does speak to the brokenness of the primary system. Yeah. I mean, if she, if that's... Speaking to how the primary system works, uh, do I think that Kirsten Sinema could beat Ruben Gallego with the general electorate or with more of the electorate looking at it? Absolutely. Uh, Bob Robb has said it continuously that he, she is a much – in a head-to-head, she beat him heads down. Now in a Democratic primary, maybe not so. Um, I think this is an opportunity for her to broaden her base. She's always sort of – appealed to the independent. She gave Democrats the template of how to win a statewide office in 2018. They've used it twice now in 2020 and 2022. Um, solidify your base, reach out to those independents. Um, I, I think she, we did the math 
if she gets about 25 percent of uh, Republicans, 25 percent of Democrats and about 60 percent of independents, she could win statewide office. That's a very difficult without mm -hmm. an infrastructure behind you to do, but it is doable. Right. I mean, doing the math and, and having those numbers like but the question is, of course, can she do it? But, you know, the thing about being an independent candidate, first of all, independents are not treated fairly in the state of Arizona. She's going to have to gather 40 plus thousand signatures compared to Rubin, who would only have to gather about 7,000. Uh, she'll also go straight to the general election. But they, there's not that party infrastructure there. Nobody's giving her the voter list or anything else. Once right. you're an independent, you're not really treated fairly in the system. So that's an uphill climb for her. Could she do it? Of, of any candidate that's out there, she's the most likely to be able to do it based on sort of her personality and her reputation. Julie, I wonder if there's a bit of an irony here in what Paul just said that Senator Sinema kind of wrote the playbook, right, for how mm -hmm. Democrats can win statewide offices these days now. And now she's left the party and in theory could maybe cost the Democrats a seat in the U.S. Senate in two years. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a possibility. <clears throat> I'm not convinced that she will run again. I mean, mm. certainly I think that that's um, not off the table, but I've thought for a while that maybe she's gunning for a, a VP position, to be quite honest. Uh, so I'm not sure that that is her end goal. Um, again, it is, you know, none of us can get into Kirsten Cinema's mind. Even her closest advisors don't really know a lot of times what's really going on. Um, I, I agree with Paul that she, of anyone, could pull it off. Although I will say this, I think Cinema is dealing with a little bit of an authenticity problem. And, you know, as consultants, this is one of the things that we talk to our clients about, you know, all the time is that when you're crafting an image for yourself, the one thing that you always have to take into consideration is making sure that it's authentic mm. because voters see through it. And I think that is why she can't win a Democratic primary. I don't think that Democrats feel that she is authentic and that's where she's lost them. Um, I don't know that the general electorate feels that she's that authentic either. Um, and so that's why I think that she's behind not just with Democrats, but in general. Well, we've been reading stories. There have been a number of them in, in national <laughs> publications where, you know, folks have talked to people who canvassed for her four years mm -hmm. ago and knocked on doors and helped her collect signatures. And those seem like some of the folks who are the most kind of ticked off right now by yes. how she's acting in the U.S. Senate, even right. though, as she points out, this is what, to an extent, what she campaigned on, right? Like, she didn't use the word Democrat a ton when she was running in 2018. She said she would be an independent voice, that kind of thing. So to an extent, what she's saying, like, people shouldn't be surprised. It seems like maybe people, to some extent, shouldn't be. I, I don't think that Democrats are upset that she's that she ran on a more centrist platform or that she's been a more centrist senator. I don't think that that's it. I think that there has been a breakdown of relationships. There's been a breakdown of conversation. There's been a breakdown of trust. And so when that happens, then you start to question decisions that are being made. When you have a senator who's talking about the importance of being respectful to the other side, of maintaining relationships, but then is showing in a very public manner some disrespect to people within her own party at the time who were critical of her, uh, that that causes a lot of hurt feelings and that causes that kind of breakdown of relationships. So I do think that it's a trust issue. That's what's really going on. Paul, let's, let's assume that that is an issue and the authenticity, the trust issue are really issues for Senator Sinema. 
How does – I would imagine those are not good things for her if she decides to run in two years. Yeah. At the same time though, uh, she's the now the the way to get things done. You know, she said to Manchin basically, hold my beer. You know, <laughs> uh, look, she – she's the one at the spearhead of this immigration reform. Everything now needs to run through her basically. At, at this point, she is now the focal point of the Senate. In Washington and here and we're all talking about her, which is exactly, um, you know, I would assume that's what she wants. And so if she can get things done, if she can accomplish some of these big goals and if she can be the the seen as the person bringing people together, I think that's a great spot for her. I mean, we, she's channeling John McCain a little bit. This is a bit of a maverick move. The difference is that McCain used to make his party mad all the time, but then he'd go back in there and stand in front of them and take every question and wear them down and would win in the in the primary. She's decided to take a different approach. I think it's probably the more modern approach. I wonder if, if in the modern age, if Senator McCain would have taken the same approach. I'm not sure about that, but I do think that the, we are changing and it does speak a little bit to the to the challenges of partisanship and the way the primaries are set up at this point. Well, so let me ask you, though, Paul, you mentioned that she's, you know, things are going to go through her, but they kind of have been going through her for, you know, two years, maybe more in D.C. And when she talks about big bills that she's been a part of in terms of, you know, the, the semiconductor bill, the infrastructure bill, working on immigration, the, the Respect for Marriage Act, she's been doing those, many of them as a Democrat. So if she's been effective where she has been, why change that? Well, it, there's shared credit on all of those, right? Now, now it's her. Um, this, the, I mean, it starts and stops. I mean, I was joking when I said hold my beer to Mansion, but at the same time, <laughs> it's always been her and Mansion or her and, you know, now it's this is through her. And I mean, she seems to have a pretty good relationship with the White House. It seems like they, they've talked to her. It's interesting. Julie talked about that she may want to run for vice president. My theory on why the governor built the border fence back to our region, original topic is that I think he's running for vice president. Mm. It'd be wild if we had two Arizona... Uh, politicians running for vice president at the same time. Well, maybe three if Kerry Lake is, oh, exactly. is running as well. We could we could have the trifecta. So, I mean, I guess, Julie, if cinema does that, like people have talked about how she could potentially follow in the footsteps of someone like Joe Lieberman, right, who was a Democratic senator from Connecticut. He lost in a primary, basically started his own party as an independent, won, and then eventually, the rumor was, was being considered as a VP candidate for John McCain when he ran for president. So maybe Se Senator Sinema could really be following even more in those footsteps. It's quite possible. I mean, I, I could actually see um, a handful of folks who might consider an independent race even for president. I mean, I, I mean, if you've got folks who are considered extreme on either side and we believe that there is this appetite to find somebody who's about solutions or a group of folks who are about solutions, then maybe that's the pattern that, it, you know, that happens. Maybe you have somebody like a, you know, Mitt Romney, who runs, you know, and and somehow manages to to get the nomination there, and then and then chooses a Kirsten Cinema to try and and solidify that electorate. Well, they're I, apparently good friends. Exactly, <laughs> and and the senator has gotten a lot of grief for that. So. Yeah, both both of them have. Right? Correct, correct. All right, so guys, just a few minutes left. I want to ask you about uh, the possibility of a special legislative session. There's nothing quite as special as a special <laughs> legislative session, as we all know. 
The uh, legislative Democrats have said that Governor Ducey promised them a, a special session to raise the uh, spending cap on schools uh, for the upcoming year. The governor's, governor has said, sure, but let's also do all these other things as well. And it seems like if they're going to do it next week is when they're going to do it just based on the calendar. Paul, do you think this is – do you think, A, this is a possibility and, B, that anything will actually get accomplished if they do come into special session? Well, there are 75 days between now and Education Doomsday according to educationdoomsday.com. That's when the, the aggregate expenditure limit kicks in and a billion dollars is cut for our schools. And I, I know there's a lot of negotiations and there might be a special session next week. It's a bit of a mistake, I think, for Republicans to not be willing to come to the table and solve this problem. They're basically handing Governor-elect Hobbs their first win if they refuse to do this. Just like Governor Ducey has said time again, time and time again, I inherited a billion dollar deficit. It's the first line he says in every one of his stump speeches. If she can say, I faced a fiscal cliff when Republicans refused to fund our education and I solved it, that's a huge W for her that they could take off the table. But they don't seem willing to, um, you know, borrow a Christmas phrase. It's around that time. And she, they're gimme gussing a little bit. They, they're trying to get more uh, than they bargained for. And, and I think that's a mistake on their part. Julie, do you think if the, if the Republicans don't do this, can then, in, you know, a couple of weeks, Governor Hobbs, can she actually take the win? Because it seems as though the next group of lawmakers might be less willing to do this than the current one. I think they will try to play chicken. I really do. Um, they definitely – there are more what I would call MAGA, you know, Republican legislators this go-round. I think that's going to make it a lot more difficult. However, I just – I mean – you're talking about closing down schools. That will be the end result. You had 75,000 teachers march on the Capitol a few years. Imagine 75,000 parents and, and then adding on the teachers in general and the students and everybody else. I mean, I just don't see how Republicans win in that situation and how they continue to play that game. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Julie Erfley of Erfley Uncuffed. Paul Benz of High Ground. Guys, thanks so much. Thank you Thank for you. having us. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.